This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Robert Laskowski. He's the president, CEO, and chairman of Quantum Computing, Inc. Robert has served as president, CEO, and chairman of QCI since February 2018, after more than 35 years in various executive roles at public and private companies, as well as federal agencies. He has extensive experience developing critical programs for protecting national security interests and essential infrastructure, as well as in crisis management, organizational development, and strategic planning. Robert's public sector experience is worth calling out. He, it's, he spent time in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Department of State, and on the private sector side, he's held roles at Implant Sciences, Coca-Cola Company, and Orion Scientific Systems. His company, Quantum Computing, Inc., is a cloud-based quantum software vendor offering ready-to-run software for complex, constrained optimization computations. The company's flagship software solution, which we'll discuss, is called Catalyst, and it's the industry's only quantum application accelerator, empowering today's programmers to immediately leverage the power of quantum techniques for faster, better, and more diverse solutions with no need for quantum expertise or training. So welcome, Bob. Thank you for joining me on the Quantum Tech Pod. Chris, it's great to be with you and uh, good to talk with you again. Great. So I always like to start the podcast by asking my guest to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective really is twofold. It's to give our audience certainly a sense of what you did before you founded Quantum Computing, Inc., but also to orient our audience to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could well, share a little bit about you know your background, your path so far, maybe where you grew up and where you went to school, what you studied, and insight into other companies and organizations where you worked prior to joining or starting QCI. So I probably am one of the least quantum people that you've talked with this entire industry, let alone be a CEO of a quantum computing company. And my path to getting here, for me, is always, you know, I look back on it and, uh, and you know, I look at myself quite surprised and quite blessed to have been here because I would not have been able to choose this path purposely. And I'll get into that. So you talk about, you know, my background. I started my professional career as, a, as in law enforcement. I was an undercover cop. Uh, became a homicide detective, and then um, and then went to work for the U.S. Department of State using doing primarily counterterrorism programs or related programs, protect embassies and people in high threat areas and things like that. And um, but the one thing I always learned, and you know, I date myself because I was a cop actually in the in the 70s and the 80s, and you know, up until I left law enforcement in the 90s. But the one common thing, and this is the thing that I think people kind of understand when I tell them about it, why I'm in this space today, is the fact that, particularly from a homicide detective's perspective, data is absolutely critical, right? More data you have, and if you can analyze it and understand it correctly, the better outcomes you're going to have, right? I learned that from everything from picking, you know, blood spatters and, and, you know, gunshot wounds and understanding how these things occurred and how you can tell, you know, what the first shot was, the second shot was, or what the stab wounds look like, or if somebody hung themselves or, were, you know, uh, were strangled and things like that. You know, that data, yeah. right, and from all the different avenues that it comes from, either from physical evidence that you collect to the medical examiner's reports and all the other things that go into it, 
allow you to make very good conclusions and ultimately can solve some pretty complex cases, right? Well, I carried that thinking all the way through everything I've ever done. That was the most formative experience I've ever had. And because I can see the, the absence of data makes you do, makes, makes bad choices, right? And, you know, and bad outcomes as a result. And that's particularly evident in the law enforcement and the criminal justice community because, you know, you can convict bad, you know, the wrong people or not convict the right people or, you know, or go without making an arrest on, on something that may haunt you for years to come. And particularly in homicides, it's kind of the, you know, kind of the way you look at that emotionally. My background, my educational background was everything from, and I finally uh, got a degree in criminal justice, but I started off as an accountant, you know, going to school. And I realized that that was not going to be a very satisfying career for me. Yeah. And I ultimately left school for a period of time, traveled around Europe, came back and decided that I was going to, you know, go heads down and study criminal justice and, and go into law enforcement. That's what I wound up doing. Well, I, when I became, believe it or not, when I was in the, uh, I was in a, a grand jury squad for a period of time, which was an inside squad, didn't, didn't, you know, go actively out and investigate cases. I was going for my master's of science degree in computer science at a you know university up in New Jersey where I grew up. I grew up in, in northern Jersey. And um, I couldn't finish it because I got transferred to the homicide squad and then got too busy for that. Um, but I spent about a year studying computer science. I programmed in uh, COBOL and Fortran and you know, use the old IBM punch card, you know, oh, yeah. approach and everything, right? So yeah. you know, my formative experience was really that. And But what I learned was that computer technology was going to be a way to be able to not just collect data, but, you know, manipulate it, synthesize it, you know, model it and do all sorts of things. And I became really intrigued about what computing can do. And I, that carried me all the way through my career. Um, and, you know, even when I was doing, you know, work in the counterterrorism arena, you know, looking at large data sets and then trying to predict behaviors of terrorist groups and things like that became sort of a passion. And you can only do that, uh, you know, manually for so long. And, you know, you really needed computer technology. And that was at the advent of, you know, uh, language, natural language processing systems and even, you know, bumping into AI, although AI was so immature at that time, people thought they were doing AI, but it was more expert systems. And, it became like it just reinforced that, you know, the, the need for that. And I always kept that as sort of the backdrop to what, I, what I've been involved in. Um, and then, of course, when I moved into my career, you know, throughout my career and came back and I was at the Coca-Cola company, um, I was uh, I headed up information security for the Coca-Cola company, not because I had this great cybersecurity background, but I understood what, what computer systems could do, their vulnerabilities, how they could affect an enterprise, how they could be attacked. And. And then ultimately put together a program that was there, you know, um, it's still in existence today that, you know, was there to protect the, uh, the enterprise. I was also consulting with the intelligence community and something called the Intelligence Science Board. And I got attracted to that because I was one of my Harvard professors where I'd gone to graduate school um, had recruited me on to a, a advanced technology panel that was reporting to the director of central intelligence at the time and then morphed to become the Intelligence Science Board. And that gave us a overview of high technology programs throughout the intelligence community, some really sensitive programs and some really interesting things going on. And because of that, I was recruited to come back in from the Coca-Cola company that when the Department of Homeland Security was started up to uh, take on all of U.S. infrastructure protection because I had a blend of operational government experience, operational private sector experience in the security world. And that was very, that was at the point of the spear for infrastructure protection because all of, virtually all of U.S. infrastructure is owned by the private sector. 
And then after that stint, I was a political appointee. I was appointed by George Bush, uh, George, you know, uh, Bush too. And uh, I left there after a couple of years uh, with the transitions and um, went back into the private sector and wound up doing a bunch of startups. And I was either sitting on the board of private or public companies and starting my own. I wound up coming on a board of a company that ultimately we took over and, and uh, sold to uh, L3, which was a public company. And and when I got done with that experience, some of the investors in that uh, enterprise came to me and said, hey, we, you know, we would love to do a public company in the quantum computing space. You know, and they, and they were, I knew them well and they knew me well and they said, we'd like you to take it over. Quite wow. candidly, I said, no. <laughs> you know, no. You know, I had I had my fun with a public company. I was like, listen, I you know, I uh, that was too much fun for me. I want to. I said I wanted to take a hiatus from it, but we. I was intrigued, you know, and, and yeah. um, I have a, we joke around here and in, in, at home, and my wife always tells me, and my philosophy is, why do something easy when you can do it hard? And um, so the uh, it, it kind of intrigued me. You know, I looked more and more into quantum computing. I mean. I, I was clearly aware of it, but clearly not an expert. But what became apparent to me, you know, with that challenge was not the, not the hardware technology, but how do you get end users to actually be able to use it? Because again, my focus is always on yeah. how do you use things to your advantage, not not get enamored with the technology itself, but you know, yeah. really kind of use it. Yeah. So that was the challenge, and we decided that we were going to do this in a way that uh, you know brought value to the end users, and how could we exploit the power of quantum computing to actually make a difference in the end user community and yeah. we, off we went that's a fascinating story what a what a interesting background oh my goodness in and out of the private sector and working appointed by george bush wow so and the the i love the through line of sort of data and the power of data right to drive outcomes that deliver value at a meta level right yeah so so tell me more about how you ended up you know founding quantum computing inc so you'd mentioned a little bit about the L3 interaction, but yeah. uh, was there sort of an, I mean, they, they came to you and said, you know, would you want to get involved in this? But yeah, so some more color on how that happened. So it's interesting, right? Um, uh, my, my co-founders are public markets guys. They like the micro cap space because, you know, there's a lot of different ways to start a company, right? You, you fund it, you bootstrap it, you go to venture capitalists, you go to angel yeah. investors. Yeah. And, the challenge you have with that approach is when you're bootstrapping, you know, you're at the vagaries of the marketplace. And when you're doing something as cutting edge as market as quantum computing, you can't bootstrap because there's there's no market, right? You know, what are you going to sell to who and who are you going to sell it to? So, you know, it was pretty obvious we, we had to take sort of the ev evangelical route because, you know, we had to sell an idea that there was going to be this promise of what quantum computing could could bring and that there would, you know, it, it was really predicated on the ability of end users to start exploiting it. And so the only lot is, so if we went the, the venture route, uh, you know, venture capital is real. They're really more interested in hardware, uh, not software at the time. Because, you know, it didn't make any sense to try to pursue software if you had no hardware to run it on. And, and everything was really much more science focused and experimental focused. So consequently, trying to make a business case around us was not, you know, immediately apparent to people. But we believe that if we waited until it was actually, you know, time to do it, it would be too late. So we took the capital markets approach. Again, my, my co-founders are very much capital markets guys, and they like the, um, the micro cap space because it allows you to go public and raise some money in folks who are willing to take a risk in high venture opportunities. So that's what we targeted. And so we did a reverse merger into a shell company, acquired a shell, 
you know, made sure that you know, it was clean. And we went through all that process to do that. And, you know, we reformed the shell and, and basically, you know, renamed it Quantum Computing Inc. It started off as a beverage company shell company. It had nothing to do with quantum computing. And people often make a mistake, right? They look at the shell company and look at the history. And they're like, well, how did you evolve from a beverage company to a quantum computing company? Like, wow. well, I'm sorry, this is business 101. We just acquired a shell, you know, <laughs> right. and yeah, we yeah. renamed it. You know, it's nothing, nothing magical. Yeah. And, um, and we raised some money and, you know, we built it around this whole notion that this is what we we're going to do. And, you know, we found people that bought into it. It wasn't as hard as you may think it was because, you know, and the, the very simple analogy that I use is sort of the hook for people to understand it is the smartphone. And I use this analogy all the time and I'm not the only one. A lot of people do. You know, you look at the flip phone back in 2000 and geez, you can make a phone call, right? Maybe, you know, maybe text somebody, you know, in some, you know, ridiculous sort of keystroke way. And then a smartphone came along and all of a sudden people said, oh, it's a phone, but you know, you can do these other things too. You know, you can manage your calendar, you can email people. And all of a sudden these apps started appearing on your phone that attracted you to try to do more things. Well, those apps quickly consumed any power the phone was going to do, right? Drew down the battery, it took a bandwidth, right? right. And then people said, we, you know, this, so you had this virtuous cycle of technology development and app development, right? And all of a sudden more users gravitated toward the phone and we know what happened today, right? You got the most powerful computer you could possibly imagine in the hand, your, in, your, in your phone, right? Really? On, your, on your hand. And by yeah. the way, it's a phone, but you manage your entire life through that thing. So you'd mentioned an important um, sort of what I refer to occasionally as sort of the chicken and egg problem, right? So quantum hardware gets a lot of the attention, a lot of the press, the spotlight is often on, you know, quantum hardware solutions. But in many ways, as you were implying, you know, software programming is a bigger challenge. And but you've got to have hardware, you got to have, you know, hardware to run the software. Right. right? Which leads me to the question around your um, innovative flagship project, Catalyst. Right. It's described uh, on the website as ready-to-run quantum software. I'm just quoting here. It uses front-end Python APIs and cloud-based software to combine classic and quantum computing techniques for optimization. So can you tell our listeners a little about how that works? Tell us about sure. Catalyst. So, you know, the first challenge we had was, you know, can we run on a quantum platform? You know, can we run on a QPU? So we went out and said, okay, you know, we have a, we have some hooks, you know, we need some hooks into a quantum computer. We have a platform idea. And, and that was, you know, that wasn't hard come up, coming up with a platform idea, but being able to be agnostic to the hardware was where some of the challenge was, you know, how do you build all the hooks into the various QPUs, the IBM or Getty, D-Wave. So um, because we wanted to be vendor agnostic and, because the only way you're going to provide true value, we think, to the end user is by giving them the choice of which QPUs they wanted to be able to run on to optimize their problems. Now, the, the assumption was, A, you know, we could run problems that could be optimized. And B, you know, not all QPUs were going to be, you know, behaving the same and computing the problem the right way, uh, or at least maybe the optimal way. So we wanted to give the, the, the users the choice of being able to do that. You know, that was the strategy behind it. And we went off and, and spent a fair amount of time producing that capability to be able to do it. So the first step was develop the platform. Second step, get into the QPUs and work with the vendors to allow us to be able to access them. And, and not just one, but as many as we could access. And then thirdly, actually make some value, you know, provide some value to the end user that would allow them to be able to run problems, even at a small level, because most of these QPUs today are still not uh, providing any kind of business value but allow them to be, get on a path to quantum. And the, the real vision was enabling 
uh, you know, business and users to begin to make investments in quantum computing for themselves to be competitively advantaged. So when quantum computing actually performs at business levels, they would be ready to do that. And that was our pitch. So, you know, we we worked hard on that and, and when we took on business cases. Right. So, you know, you can sell concepts and people kind of get interested, but they quickly lose interest when you can't prove what you're saying. And you have to develop business cases and use cases for them. And we went straight for the use case. Um, we started giving access at the time. The predecessor to um, uh, Catalyst was something we called Mukai, in which we gave unfettered access to anybody that wanted to sign up and said, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. Figure it out. See if you guys can use it. And and people would sign up. We had mostly a lot of academics. We had a few, uh, you know, small companies and business firms sign up, no charge. And we gave them access to QPUs via Bracket. And then, you know, when Bracket really matured and came, you know, uh, um, commercially uh, available, uh, we dovetailed that with our evolution of Mukai into Catalyst and, and made the announcement, we're doing this with Bracket. Uh, Catalyst would be then, you know, Visa Bracket, Visa V Bracket, you could uh, interface with any of the Bracket uh, available QPUs, which at the time was D-Wave and Rigetti and IonQ. And they're adding more, and we're going to be adding more along with that. And then we could do the IBM in the same way. And then, um, you know, we wanted to make sure we could drive the business value. So we really focused on that front end and, and develop a number of use cases that we think are demonstrate the value of getting into quantum computing. And now we're really focused on providing even more value than that by providing better power and accelerating the value of quantum computing through the software. Is it? It's taking classically written code and then um, transforming it into uh, right. quantum algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the key, right? So yeah. you know, quantum computing and classical computing will will never. They'll always coexist. Yeah. Right? yeah. Quantum computing is never going to just you know take over classical computing. Um, the problems themselves, some problems will only run really well on classical computing, but there will be elements of those problems that will really accelerate. Um, the benefit by running on a quantum computer. So, you know, we do that. It's sort of a hybrid model, right? And we we encourage that. But the um, but to your point, you know, we we use classical programming approaches, Python, et cetera, to be able to interface. But then the Catalyst does the hard work of taking that problem, which is classically developed, and be able to run it on a quantum computer. So we'll allow them. And this is where our professional services approach comes in, because you know this is not trivial, right? I'm not trying to make this sound like yeah. You know, you can just easily program something and it requires some skill. However, it doesn't require quantum computing skill. Yeah. And as a consequence, you know, formulating a problem that can run on a quantum computer is where our professional services team comes in. It doesn't mean that you have to have our professional services team do the uh, programming for you. Once you learn how to code the program or code the problem, you know, you're, you're off and running on your own. So thank you for explaining that. No, I appreciate it. I want to ask you about the um, recently announced, uh, I guess, partnership with QCI and QPhoton. Yeah. I read that uh, you guys have agreed to work together, um, described as merging QCI's quantum software solution catalyst, we were just talking about, with QPhoton's advanced photonic quantum technology. So it's really, it's really interesting. As I, I mentioned, um, what we talked about, though, uh, I think, you know, there's not one type of quantum computer which is going to dominate the space, right? Yeah. IBM has its gate model computer. D-Wave has got its annealer, right? Ion-Q uh, has got its ion-based computer. Um, photonics is another way to harness the, the, uh, you know, the value of the physics behind quantum computing. And so the physics are fundamentally all the same, irrespective of which approach you take. How you get there, however, is different. 
So the gate model is a different, you know, you've got to virtually, you know, freeze atoms, right? You've got to bring atoms to the point where there's no movement in there because of the error correction required. Ion trap is a different way to do it. Ion computing is a different way. Photonic, and I couldn't begin to explain how these work, right? I'm just the business guy. But um, photonics is, you know, is also different, but, you know, it's not heat generating, right? It's photonics. It's light. Um, so we're not, we're, we want to harness the power and we're always looking for partners and with whom we can partner to, to bring those technologies to the, to, you know, uh, an end user and democratize yeah. it. Well, QPhoton is focused on, you know, they've done a number of quantum sensing things, the quantum networks, things that really are aligned with where we think the end user community is really focused on. They have some other opportunities that we can talk about later, but, um, we're very much aligned in our, our philosophy about trying to democratize quantum computing, access it by business users, getting it out there and not focusing on the hardware, focusing on the solutions. And so uh, they approached us uh, a while back and said, hey, listen, we think you know there's interesting stuff we can do together. We looked at that and he said, you know, this is a really interesting little company. So we decided to make an investment in that company, uh, you know, actually a debt. And it's not really an investment, it's debt. But regardless, they needed some money. We were happy to facilitate that because it encourages the partnership and we'll see where it goes in the future. I want to congratulate you on your transition to NASDAQ in July of last year. Yeah, thank you. Bravo. So um, I know you'd been on the OTCQB, right? Sort of yep. mid-tier over the counter. Right. Um, and wondering, you know, that NASDAQ, being NASDAQ opens up lots of options. Now, referencing back to your investors being micro-cap focused, is, uh, are there, I just wonder what their perspective is on, say, the benefits and challenges for yeah. So, you know, we're a long-term play, right? And I tell investors, listen, if you're looking to turn your money around in six months, this is not the company for you, right? You need to go look for companies and we're, we're a growth company. We're, you know, in a highly, uh, you know, we're an emerging space. So if you're looking to keep your money in a company where you think the promise of quantum computing can be realized, we're good for you, right? There are very few public opportunities. We were the, we were actually the first pure public play in quantum computing. And we're still, I think the, the, only pure software play in quantum computing. Now you have IonQ coming in in the hardware space and they're claiming their space in the hardware space. That's fine. But the point is, is there are very few opportunities for companies to, you know, purely invest in quantum computing at any level, whether it be hardware or software. So, you know, the investor base that we were establishing, um, even even in the microcap space in the, uh, you know, when we were the OTC company, it was, that, was the, that was the premise. You know, don't come in for the short term. You know, this is a highly volatile stock, right? You'll see ups and downs and everything in between. But for the long term, this is where we want to play. And, and obviously, the, the move to NASDAQ gave us that long term perspective and stability because it's a much more mature exchange, right? Um, you know, it's, to get onto the NASDAQ exchange, you, you have to meet all their criteria. And we were always a public reporting company, but, and we were always transparent. But that's one of the criteria for NASDAQ. And I think that's, that's a good public um, and, you know, forum for companies like ours, particularly. And I don't mean to, you know, my competitors out there, I'm not taking a jab at anybody. But when you're a private company, you, you can make claims on things that you don't have to prove in the public markets, right? You know, you're a public company. You better not say anything that's not true. So you so, had referenced uh, your consulting practice before. I mm -hmm. want to drill down to that a little bit. Um, it's called QCI con uh, Consulting, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I found uh, something you described as a four-phase framework, which looked really interesting. Um, describe it as, uh, you know, sort of a tool set, if you will, that organizations can use 
to explore, measure, and strategically plan their quantum mm -hmm. computing adoption. So right. tell me about the consulting practice and about the framework. I want to yeah. So of course, everything in the quantum world has got to be given with a Q. So right, consulting is spelled with a Q. That's, <laughs> of course. You know, and uh, that's... <laughs> The way it's got to be, um, uh -huh. oh, yeah. but you know, from a practical standpoint, you know, it's 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 not it's consulting, but more professional services. And by that, I mean we're not the uh, we're not the subject matter experts in a particular problem area that you may have. For example, we're not supply chain experts, but we're not going to be wind optimization experts. But what we will do is work with you as the expert to help you formulate your problems that can ultimately run through quantum computers. So. What we have found through, you know, through our interaction with clients, we were we were hoping, um, and probably a little naively in the beginning, we were thinking that the, 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 you know, the catalyst software would be something we could make available to people, and they would just be able to program on their own. You know, we did a lot of handholding in the beginning, and it became pretty obvious to us outside of a few companies that had the actual, you know, in in-house expertise or you know the right programming expertise to be able to do it. It required a classical approach toward helping a client adopt into that the quantum world. So, you know, we've we've evolved as well. And you know, the, this path to quantum that we talk about is really that that approach that we use in the consulting and the professional services side to help you know identify expectations. You know, what are they doing? So, you know, appropriately put your expectations in order in terms of what quantum computing can do. What is it? You know, what's what problems you're looking to solve? Where can quantum help? Can't be all things to all people, like we said. Classical is going to be great at some things, quantum great at some things, and then combined in the hybrid approach, really good at a lot of things, right? And we help them define that. We help them understand how those problems can be formulated. We help them get ready for it. If we have to, we'll train their folks, we get them, you know, we can help them even decide which QPUs might be best for them to make an investment in or to, to move toward based upon the types of problems they have. As I mentioned, not all QPUs are equal. And as a consequence, you're not going to get the same results for your problem on all QPUs. So we'll have, we have the data that tells you which, which ones will optimize for your problem. And our folks will help you figure that out. So a couple of things. Talk about democratization. We want to make this available to folks. We want to make it available to companies without having to make a significant investment where they don't get the, the value. Their business value is going to be realized when they can actually start figuring out how they get real answers that can help their problem. Not how do they program a quantum computer? So we shut, yeah. you know, we we we, we truncate that process. Um, we save them money on that. We save them money on not having to figure out which QPU to use or make an investment into a QPU. And and through that entire process, we get you on the path to quantum. Yeah, this seems like a much a much needed, uh, you know, offering, if you will. I mean, certainly because it's connected to a company that actually you know knows what the business is, knows what the tools right. are. You know, it's. Uh, so, and it, it works at scales, right? So yeah. big firms that know their expertise, that have the expertise, right? We can interface with them and help them like banking firms that are interested in looking at fintech solutions or maybe anti-money laundering solutions because it's an optimization problem. You know, we can work with their experts and help them figure out how quantum can help. For consulting firms that are trying to bring like, you know, take one of the big four consulting firms out there. They have the expertise, but they're trying to bring these technologies to their clients. Well, we can help them do that. Right. We can help them become smart on quantum while they keep their expertise focused on what their clients are looking to do and try to solve business solutions. So the emphasis of what we're trying to do is to really de-emphasize the QPU and really emphasize the business focus. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's terrific. What a great uh, capability you guys are offering in that space. 
I'm a strong advocate of the importance of education, right? The mm-hmm. discipline that enables all other disciplines, if you I'm paraphrasing, I think the Arizona State University president. But anyway, you know, it's key to expanding the impact of quantum information science. So I was excited to read about your Qubit University. So can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, what made you create this and what the content is and maybe who's using it? Sure. Honestly, it was an approach to try to get as many users out there to start banging on our system as we possibly could. And the academic community is perfect for that. You know, a lot of emerging physics programs out there. There's quantum physics clubs in some of these universities. I, th- I think we approached Purdue first, so they may have approached us. But regardless, we established a relationship with Purdue, with their physics department and their quantum club, to be able to get them to use Catalyst to start, you know, as part of their, first it was with the club to say, hey, uh, folks, here's an opportunity. You know, you can access these quantum computers. Go at it. And right. they did. Cool. And then we um, then we got more ingrained in their academic program. And we just recently, uh, one of our professional services folks um, uh, had just given a talk to the uh, quantum uh, women in quantum uh, club at, uh, at at Purdue, um, and she did a tremendous job at you know getting first time users in quantum physics to be able to program and, and run a problem on using Catalyst on a quantum computer. And, you know, we just did this as a bit of an experiment to see what kind of uptake we would get and to see if we could use this as a way to kind of get folks to become more uh, attuned to what quantum computing can do and get that inculcated into the academic community. Well, that's taking off. Um, Rebel Brown, who's our vice president for strategy, is leading that charge. And she's working with a number of universities now to get that um, established programmatically. And we're not going to charge for it. Right. In some cases, we can. In most cases, we just want to get folks to use the software because we get a lot of good feedback from that. And it helps build our user base and we can make some, you know, adjustments to what we're doing based upon that user feedback. So it's tremendously valuable for us. Quite candidly, it's nothing different than Apple did, you know, you know back 30 years ago, right? 40 yeah. years ago almost, right? Well, I think it even the, like IBM, you know, encouraging computer science programs at universities right. like in the 50s or 60s. Exactly. Right? So... Yeah. So now you're touching on a point for me, which I think is actually a very critical area, which is workforce development. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God bless all these kids that are coming from foreign countries that see the opportunity here that we're training up in the hard sciences. And that's great. But if you take a, a survey of, of the hard sciences and you look at the universities, most of these kids are coming from foreign countries. We need to get more of the U.S. student population geared toward, you know, we have it with STEM programs. But we have to get folks really geared toward, you know, using quantum computing for what it really can do. And I'm, I'm, I say I, but we as a company are very focused on working with, you know, with the academic institutions, even down to the high school level. We've had conversations with um, a couple of states here just recently uh, about the opportunities that we can develop for high school level children or students to be able to use Catalyst in their environment. They're already programming Python. I mean, most of these kids today are already programming in, in middle school in Python, right? So for them to transition through the, their academic career into these opportunities is a path for them that can help them really gain some interesting career opportunities. And what's, what's exciting for me is that then we're really talking about, you know, sustainable educational programs, which are encouraging students of, you know, from every, you know, economic structure, it doesn't make any difference to be able to move into what was maybe an elitist um, program before into a very 
you know, business friendly and, and a career enhancing opportunity for them in the long term. That's what we need to be doing. And we're, we are very focused on that. So it's, it's sort of a, you know, I don't want to say it's just uniquely a good, good neighbor approach, right? Um, but we're trying to be that good neighbor, but, you know, clearly we're going to get benefit from it because we're going to learn from our users. Yeah, no, congrats on that. And, and I look forward to following the progress of that program. I want to talk a little bit about sort of vision, right? I, I read that uh, William McGann, who'd been a board member mm-hmm. or on the board of directors, was appointed COO slash CTO. Um, and the, the objective was to help the organizational operation change to better align with the company's stated mission. So can you tell me more about what William's role will be and really how it you know, reflects the roadmap or vision for QCI? Where do you see it going? In- yeah. So, you know, um, Bill and I have had the benefit of working together previously. He and I both worked in implant sciences to turn that company around. And um, what I learned during that period of time is Bill is a leader. Um, he, he's, he's got a tremendously great talent for being both a highly technical person. He's got a tremendous physics background. And uh, he built his own company back in the, uh, in the 80s um, and ultimately sold it. It was a first, it was a first explosive ion-based explosive trace detection company out there, which he ultimately sold. And Bill's background in, in spectrometry and, and uh, sensing and you know, manufacturing these programs was, is tremendous. But more important than his technical background is his leadership skills. He knows how to translate technical requirements and technical needs into actually a business value proposition and has done manufacturing. So um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Bill's experience and his, his management capability. And one of the things that I knew that we were going to have to do was kind of when we talk about scaling and really, you know, keeping pace in the industry, we needed, you know, both more discipline and we need more, we need, you know, more structure around, you know, going from a startup company and transitioning to a commercial company is not a trivial exercise, right? When you're in a startup company, it's exciting, right? You have elbows flying all over the place, problems being solved, people excited about what they're doing and you're solving problems and you're doing some things, but you don't have a lot of structure, right? Well, if without structure, you can't scale, right? You need the bones and the framework to be able to build this organization. And, you know, I got to a point where I knew that, you know, Bill's background could, you know, easily translate into something that could be beneficial to the company. I uh, was able to attract him on the board, and once he got on, and once once he really understood what we were doing, you know, he became excited about the opportunities. And the benefit was he came from Alidos, one of the largest defense companies in the United States, and he understands the nexus between scientific research and ultimately commercial development and application. I, I, again, I was able, I was very fortunate to attract him to come in to say, "Hey, here's a challenge. We need to, you know, we need to evolve." And I know that for us to be able to evolve, we need more structure. I need people like you and others that are going to come in here and, and help me build that. And that's exactly what his mission is. So, you know, yeah, I, I look forward to Bill and, and others like him. You know, he's done a great job in bringing the team together and we're looking to attract new talent. So it's, um, it's very exciting. We've now come to what I describe as the million dollar question, or you and I are probably old enough to, for me to refer to it as a $64,000 question <laughs> based on the TV show. That's right. Um, one, which is clients, right? So, mm-hmm. without you know revealing competitive advantage or disclosing anything that uh, represents you know information under NDA or confidentiality, people always want to know you know who are you doing business with? Um, can you shed some light on that? Like, how's that uh, going? Sure. Where is it going? 
Yeah, I, I haven't made any uh, public announcements, and I certainly I'd love to, but I can't regrettably make any today. But what yeah, I will tell you is that we're working with clients that are actually, um, you know, revenue paying clients that will be you know, announcing in our, our, uh, our next quarter um, uh, reporting. But, um, but we actually have, you know, revenue clients, revenue based clients for our software and for our professional services group. So it's very encouraging for us. It's very validating. Um, you know, you, you come from the world where, you know, if you give things away for free for a while, there's no value to them. And the real test is not just the uptake on free, but the uptake on paying. And we've crossed that threshold. So for us, um, you know, and there, and we've had the benefit of working with a number of very big companies um, in, and testing out our approach and, and working with them to get to a point where, you know, we can, we can actually move into the revenue state. And I'm not suggesting that we have a, uh, you know, a fortune 50 company as a client, um, but we've got, we've got some folks that are very interested in moving along the path of quantum for us. And you'll have to stay tuned. Well, it's a great teaser because Chris, I'll have to ask you to have <laughs> me back on your, on your show when I can talk about it. Okay. No, that sounds good. Yeah. And th- I didn't mean to press you, but I always, you know, people always want to know, like, is there, is there a pony in here? Like is somebody yeah. who's stepping up and, you know, I totally understand. Well, but we'll, I'll, you know, I'll tease you follow on conversation. <laughs> there will be. And I'll on. tell you, there'll be another yeah. interesting follow on that we'll talk about that we'll make an announcement about in a couple of weeks. And that is, so imagine, you know, we know that, you, you know, and your audience probably knows the power of quantum computing today is yet to be realized, right? We haven't reached any supremacy, although, you know, a couple of companies have talked about supremacy in the context of some science experiments, but nothing at a business level, right? Uh, QPUs are too small. You know, the, you know, we're talking 150 qubits or even, even 500 qubits is too small for a, a, you know, a real business value problem. But imagine through the power of software, you could offer a 5x multiple or a 20x multiple on those, qub- on those qubits. So you go from 20 to 2,500 qubits or maybe even you know, several thousand qubits. And now you're talking to be able to do variables that are really meaningful at a business level. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what we're working on and we've demonstrated that capability. So well, more to follow on that, but you know, we're not waiting for the software, the hardware vendors to get to a point where we know they can provide business value. Our goal today is to provide business relevant quantum computing with our software capability that will make a difference to, to business users today. We're coming to the end and I wanted to ask you, I always like to close by asking about workforce, back to the workforce and mm-hmm. education um, conversation, right? Uh, I want to get your take on the challenges facing a company like QCI and finding talent. How do you go about recruiting for your company? Do you have relationships with universities? Um, and, we do. Yep. And so could you tell us more about that? And then are there specific disciplines or roles that are tougher to fill than, than others? So, um, so to you, the first answer is, you know, we, we, we have relationships with universities and we're looking at that as part of the other strategy behind our qubit uh, U University or Qubit U rather uh, um, partnership with academics is that we want to be able to, you know, attract the right talent into the company. The good news is that we're not looking for high-end quantum computing programmers, right? Clearly we have our, our cadre of PhD mathematicians and physicists, but, you know, not everybody has to have a PhD level education to be able to program or, or even provide business relevant uh, quantum computing experience. Operations research folks, data scientists, folks that really understand data, really really understand 
how end users need to be interfacing with the uh, with the technology is really where we've been recruiting, both academically, but you know, also through our own personal networks and attracting the right talent. You know, fortunately, you know, because we're public, we get some some good press out there because of the things that we're doing and the partnerships we have with Amazon, for example. You know, gets us to attract um, some quality folks that we wouldn't have otherwise had access to. So our partnerships give us the attraction for those folks. We haven't had a problem in um, in attracting really quality talent, uh, and it's a diverse pool. You know, um, and that was the other thing too. Just one one other point that's really kind of I think been a challenge that we've been able to navigate and turn around, and that is you know working through COVID. COVID provided a del- an element of challenge. That actually turns out to be a benefit, right? We learned how to adapt very quickly in developing a diverse workforce that's distributed across the United States and managing that. Now, that's not without its its challenges, but I can tell you right now, it certainly helps in terms of accumu- attracting people that don't have to move. They're, if they're they're comfortable staying where they're at, you know, we can give them all the tools they need to be able to interface with what we're doing. And of course, you need a lot of care and feeding of folks, particularly younger folks that have, haven't been in the workforce before, right? You need to inculcate them into your your world. But, um, but that helped. Believe it or not, that's actually been a benefit. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So, Bob, we've come to the end. I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation, very enlightening. I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy it. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. Uh, I want to point listeners to your website. It's www.quantumcomputinginc.com. Um, I also noticed you had some cool videos on YouTube. And yeah. a Twitter handle as well, at QCI Quantum. Yep. So I invite people to follow you there. And uh, appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate the opportunity, Chris. It's really, uh, it's listen, it's funny, right? I never would have thought I'd be in this position 10 years ago, let alone 30 years ago, right? And I'm fortunate, and I say blessed too, because what quantum computing, the technology offers for the future you know, we talk about where the imagination intersects with reality. I think the imagination for what quantum computing can really do is yet it will it'll take decades before it's really realized. In some ways it's kind of scary, but it's really invigorating. And for me to be involved in this opportunity at this point in my life, I can't I tell you what, I'm probably the luckiest guy around. Bob, thanks so much for sharing that perspective. And I totally agree. I think it's a very exciting space to be in. So to be continued. To be continued. I look forward to it, Chris. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Bob, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. I want to invite you to please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Bob. Uh, can listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I also want to mention that the next Inside Quantum Technology event called Quantum Enterprise is going to be held in San Diego, May 10 through 12. It's going to be a hybrid event, so you can join us in person or online. You can find out more at iqtevents.com slash San Diego. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.